Hello, and welcome to the reading of The Courier for Tuesday, the 31st of January. I am your narrator, Peter Welch, and you are listening to IRIS, which is the Iowa Radio Information Services Network for the Blind and the Disabled. All right, let's take a look at the front page here of The Courier. Bill would limit solar arrays. Iowa Senate legislation addresses worries about adjacent landowners. In Des Moines, energy companies and landowners would be limited on where they can set up solar panel arrays under a bill advanced in the Iowa Senate. The bill, Senate Study Bill 1077, would prohibit setting up a commercially owned solar field on land suitable for agriculture within 150 feet of a neighboring property or within 1,250 feet of a neighboring residence or livestock facility. A three-member subcommittee advanced the bill two to one, noting that they intend to amend it. Senators Dan Zumbach, Republican Ryan, and Don Driscoll, Republican Williamsburg, voted to advance it, while Senator Tony Bizignano, Democrat of Des Moines, did not. Zumbach, the bill's floor manager, said it is intended to address multiple concerns landowners have about solar fields on neighboring properties. Some landowners don't like to see solar panels near their property, he said. He also said that tornadoes and windstorms could blow debris into an adjacent property. Most people that live around them don't like what they look like when they're used to looking at farmland and pasture. And they see this new industrial-style product coming into our farmland, he says. But by no means is this bill intended to shut down the solar industry. It's going to be a viable part of the state of Iowa. But it's about showing respect for everybody on each side of the fence. Zumbach introduced a similar bill last year that would have prohibited installing solar panel fields on highly productive farm land. The bill also included a 1,250-foot setback requirement from the closest property. Several power companies and environmental organizations are registered opposed to the legislation, and they said that during the subcommittee meeting, it would limit options for landowners and hurt the expansion of solar power. The bill will severely limit the land available for landowners who wish to monetize their land in this particular fashion. Alliant Energy lobbyist Ted Stupolis said, Alliant Energy has both large utility scale and smaller user-hosted solar projects. The company is aiming to generate 400 megawatts of solar panel by 2024. According to its website, as of 2022, there were 646 megawatts of solar energy installed across Iowa. According to the Solar Energy Industries Association, the state ranks 27th by the portion of its energy coming from solar power. Opponents also said that the setback requirement, which amounts to almost a quarter mile from a neighboring residence or livestock facility, would be a project killer and put a huge limit on the amount of space energy companies and landowners would have to work with. The larger you make the distance, that means that the more farmland that we actually have to go out and try to work on because you're taking that farmland by the homeowner 
by the livestock facility out of use. We've got to go and acquire that someplace else. That means that ultimately you're raising the cost, said Christopher Rance, a lobbyist for the Iowa Solar Energy Trade Association and Next Era Energy. Matt Gronwald, a lobbyist for the Iowa Farm Bureau, said that the organization is in support of the bill, but it would support restricting only large-scale projects of 40 acres or more. Convention Center hosts home show on weekend. Friday to Sunday event expected to draw 7,500. In Waterloo, if you can't fight the feeling anymore, that overwhelming urge to paint or knock down walls, remodel, redecorate, or launch a new interior, exterior, or a landscaping project when spring arrives, you can check out the latest trends and products available at the Eastern Iowa Home and Landscaping Show Friday through next Sunday. The 71st event will take place at the Waterloo Convention Center at Sullivan Brothers Plaza. The hours are from 3 to 8 p.m., Friday, 10 a.m. to 7 p.m., Saturday, 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., next Sunday. Typically, the show draws around 7,500 people from throughout the Northeast Iowa area. The home show is co-hosted by the Exchange Club of Waterloo. It's under new management this year, Events Incorporated. Exhibits will include new home contractors, remodeling experts, interior design, kitchen, home, entertainment, and landscaping. Consumers can shop for lighting, plumbing, water and heating, cooling systems, flooring, windows, doors, siding, hot tubs, fireplaces, sunrooms, grills, geothermal heating, and cooling solar energy fencing, lawn care equipment, and custom outdoor furniture. Okay, let's see what else is going on uh, today here on the front page of the paper. Emergency centers get federal funds. Gilbertville, Buchanan County receive awards in Gilbertville. The 2023 federal omnibus appropriations bill will benefit multiple community projects in Northeast Iowa, including much-needed emergency centers in Blackhawk and Buchanan counties. In Blackhawk County, $500,000 was set aside for the Gilbertville Emergency Services Building, according to Kurt Bovey, chief of the Gilbertville Fire and Rescue. Construction is expected to begin in the fall. The building, which Bovey expects to come in at around $2.8 million, will be large enough to house police, fire, and emergency medical services. The city will hold a referendum March 7th to ask voters to approve issuing $1.25 million in general obligation bonds to allow the project to go forward. The bonds would be repaid with property tax proceeds. The half million dollars is a big step towards moving forward with this project and getting this project started, Bovey says. It's been in the works for a number of years now, but obviously with COVID and everything else, the price of the building has gone up. So this is a big step towards possibly making this happen as long as the referendum vote comes through on the 7th of March. Meanwhile, the Buchanan County area received $208,000 for its new Emergency Operations Center in Independence. Recognizing a need for more space, 
the county's emergency management agency purchased the former Rydell Auto Dealership building since its space in the courthouse can only seat 10 people comfortably. We saw a need for a new emergency operations center, said Chris Hare, Buchanan County Emergency Operations Assistant. So when we were doing the planning for the building inside the service area, the front 42 feet of that, we thought that that would make a great emergency operations center. The first part of the remodeling process, moving public health into the old showroom, is complete and officials are using the paint room for the sheriff's office. However, there was still work that needed to be done. Upon learning that U.S. Representative Ashley Hinson, Republican of Iowa, was accepting applications for community project funding, Buchanan County jumped at the opportunity to apply. The proposal was written up by Hare, who met with Hinson's office. The project was funded when Congress approved the appropriations bill. Hinson's agreed with everything we're doing. She put it in, and finally, it was a long time, but it finally passed, Hare said. And it's a good thing, too, because it's, it's good for our community and our county anyway. According to Emergency Management Coordinator Rick Wolfenkuhl, the measure has benefits for not only Buchanan County, but much of Northeast Iowa. The agency is now in position to assist with over a dozen counties in its uh, partnered that it has partnered with. And the good part about that, too, to make a side note, is we work really strongly within our district. And our district is a pretty good size, 14-county district, Wolfenkuhl says. So that means we could be the backup for anybody contiguous to us if they were having problems. No plans in place for houses at UNI. Alumni House Honors Cottage not being used. Cedar Falls, the Honors Cottage and Alumni House have been offline for several months at the University of Northern Iowa and are not being used for anything. But no concrete plans exist outlining what might be in store for the two-century-old buildings. According to Pete Morris, Director of University Relations, it's been a little more than a year since UNI officials proposed that the house be demolished primarily to be good financial stewards of state resources. And they said that an estimated $1.6 million in deferred maintenance needed to be completed on the buildings at that time. The Board of Regents later tabled the request after Regents David Barker, who now happens to be the chair of the property and facilities committee, questioned whether all of those repairs were absolutely necessary and asked the university to take a step back to take a look at, at its campus needs. A basic breakdown of the maintenance provided last year to the courier lists the expenses as being for windows, and that was 57000 $414, utilities, $56,958, site work, $25,979, the roof, $36,333, plumbing, $151,718 interiors, $286,006 for 
for Hyvec, 251608 building envelope, $322,140 electrical, $172,046 for the elevators, $165,747 and controls, $102,500, I should say, excuse me, I should say $102,546. There hasn't been any dialogue among senior leadership with regard to those two specific facilities, Morris says, but he also acknowledged that the houses have limited functional space and don't offer as much flexibility as other facilities on campus. No time frame exists for when a decision might be made as the university's needs are continually being evaluated, he went on to say. Okay, what else is going on here? Let's take a look at Washington. Concerns over prayer breakfast lead Congress to take over event. The National Prayer Breakfast, one of the most visible and longstanding events that brings religion and politics together in Washington, is splitting from the private re- religious groups that had o- overseen it for decades due to concerns the gathering had become too diverse. The organizer and host for this year's breakfast, scheduled for Thursday, will be the National Prayer Breakfast Foundation, headed by former Senator Mark Pryor, Democrat of Arkansas. Senator Chris Coons, a regular participant and chairman of the Senate Ethics Committee, said that the move was prompted in part by concerns in recent years that members of Congress did not know important details about the larger multi-gathering. Coons, Democrat of Delaware, said that in the past, he and Republican Senator James Lankford of Oklahoma, the committee's vice chairman, had questions about who was invited and how money was being raised. The annual event went on several days, had thousands of people attending, and a very large and somewhat complex organization, Coons said in an interview. Some questions have been raised about our ability as members of Congress to say that we knew exactly how it was being organized, who was being invited, and how it was being funded. Many of us who've been in leadership roles really couldn't answer those questions. That led to lawmakers deciding to take over organizing for the prayer breakfast itself. Prior president of the new foundation said that the COVID-19 shutdown gave members a chance to reset the breakfast and return it to its origins, a change he said had been discussed for years. The whole reason the House and Senate wanted to do this was to return it to its roots, When House members and Senate members can come together and pray for the president, pray for his family, administration, pray for our government and the world, Pryor said. Pryor said that members of Congress, the president, vice president, and other administration officials and their guests are invited to Thursday's prayer breakfast, which will be held at the Visitors Center at the Capitol. He anticipated between 200 and 300 people will be attending that. Okay, let's now go over to the Cedar Valley uh, area, uh, to be specific, Cedar Falls. Uh, Assisted living facility is to grow. Oak Park Estates plans second building for 16 additional apartments. In Cedar Falls, a close-knit assisted living memory care facility expects to open a second location in the fall. 
Oak Park Estates is constructing a 10,000-square-foot building for 16 future residents at 3202 Green Hill Circle, immediately to the west of its current home on the eastern side of the town and on an acreage it purchased from nearby First Security State Bank. We've been full, and people have been on a waiting list, said founder-owner Luke Moore. When under stress, people are looking to move fast, and they're ready to act. There's not many other places our size, and we, and we feel that we've been good with those struggling with their memory. His business also is building the new facility with expectations it will help Oak Park Estates stay competitive in the job market by offering better wages and more benefits as well as more and flexible hours. One significant development coming as part of the plans will be the hiring of an activities director. She'll keep the residents engaged and active with things like exercise, crafting, and baking, says Moore. It's great for their minds, and it reduces the decline. Nobody ever wants to stay still. Moore anticipates shovels being in the ground in April for the, thir- for the $3 million project after its first home opened in July 2020, when no thoughts were on his mind about a possible expansion down the road. The layout will be completely identical to the current facility with the single occupancy rooms, common spaces like the family, dining and living rooms, as well as outdoor patio, a favorite spot for residents during the warmer months. Everybody is in and out, and we have grills out, Moore said. Everybody likes a good hot dog or a burger in the summertime. Rooms have individualized lighting and temperature controls, and the facility features chaplain services, a hair salon, a professional chef, and visits from university and northern Iowa students, among other perks of living there. Moore also noted that communication is key. We know what's going on with our residents all the time and their extended family and all their likes and dislikes, he said. Everybody is in the loop. And our size allows us to do that. Between the two buildings, he expects about 42 employees to run the operation. And that includes caregivers and nurses, as well as a director, manager, and activities director. The activities make the world go round, director Michelle Raspeck pointed out. She also expressed her pride in what they've built the last couple years and the environment created for those struggling with memory loss. Home is the best place until it's just not working anymore, she said. It's really hard to move, and small changes lead to confusion, but they'll be coming to a small atmosphere where we're in tune with them and their struggles. Someone is always here, and it's not someone random. Okay, let's see what's going on in Waterloo. Counselor sent to jail and fondling teen plea. Former pastor gets 30 days and two years probation. A former counselor has been sentenced to jail for touching a teenage uh, client in 2021. I'm 100% guilty for what happened. This should have never happened, Scott Kenneth Harrison, age 66, told the court Monday as he pleaded to one count of lascivious conduct with a minor, a misdemeanor, in Blackhawk County District Court. Harrison, who spent more than two decades as a pastor before establishing a counseling practice in 2004, said he was sorry with every cell in his body and every second of every day, and he apologized for violating the teen's trust. 
I have damaged the name of Christ for her, he said. Harrison told the courts that while there was no excuse for his conduct that day, he said he was recovering from COVID-19, exhausted, overworked, burnt out, and undergoing anxiety when it happened. All right, let's go to Cedar Falls yet again. Symphony takes on jazz and pop tunes. Concert features Timo Andres, piece inspired by Brian Eno's music. For anyone unfamiliar, Brian Eno's music, composer Timo Andres, offers a quasi-introduction to the British pop electronic music pioneer, producer, and songwriter, and a piece to be performed on Saturday by the WCF Symphony. Andre's paraphrase of themes of Brian Eno is on the program for the Chamber Orchestra concert at 7 p.m. in the Great Hall at the Gallagher Blue Dorn Performing Arts Center. The concert also will feature Aaron Copeland's music for the theater and Darius Milhod's La Creation du Monde. A couple of things inspired the Eno piece, explains the Brooklyn, New York-based Andres, also a world-class pianist. There's my admiration for Eno, known for his work in ambient and college music. And when conductor Andro Sire, Grammy-nominated Metropolis founder, asked me to write a piece to pair with my piano concert influenced by Mozart, Home Stretch, I thought about Eno's harmonies and timbers that are distinctly contemporary and of our time. Andres used the 19th century trope of orchestral paraphrase to explore Eno's music, he said, including albums, Before and After Science, Another Green World, and Apollo. What I did was take five or six Eno tunes and stitch them together in a way that makes them into a new type of piece. Part of the challenge and fun was those Eno tunes are recording studio products, mostly electronic, in instruments, lots of tape recorders on loops and electric guitars, and the idea of translating these sounds to an acoustic orchestra was interesting to me. The composer goes on to explain, Jason Weinberger will conduct the Chamber of Orchestra, the first chamber performance since the pandemic-era video series and highlights soloists from within the orchestra. Weinberger appreciates the parallels between Andre's modern pop inspiration and in Malad and Copeland's work that were greatly influenced by early 20th century American jazz. It's a neat program, bringing together music for small ensembles, but inspired by or drawing upon jazz and pop as a source material. Copeland is known for experimenting with jazz and jazz rhythms, and French composer Malad was totally taken by jazz when it made its way to France in the 1920s, Weinberger goes on to say. I've always liked working on Timo's music and exchanging interpretations and thoughts with him. Okay, what else is going on here? Going to Des Moines now. Heart. Caucuses not lost yet. New Iowa Democratic leader says caucus demise, not a done deal. In Des Moines, the new leader of the Iowa Democratic Party has not given up on Iowa Democrats' first-in-the-nation presidential caucuses, even as a vote to strip away that lofty status looms in mere days. Rita Hart, a former state legislature and candidate for Congress and lieutenant governor who's just two days into her tenure as a state party chair, told Iowa reporters on Monday... She believes that the Iowa Democrats' first-in-the-nation caucus status is not yet dead, and that she plans to work toward a caucus solution that is in Iowa's best interests. 
Democrats' National Leadership Committee is scheduled to meet this weekend in Philadelphia to vote on, on a proposal from its Rules and Bylaws Committee to overhaul the party's presidential nominating calendar, including by revoking Iowa's prized first-in-the-nation status for Democratic candidates, which the state has held for 50 years. Hart believes that there still is hope for Iowa. This is certainly not a done deal, Hart told reporters in her first news conference as state party chair. I'm hoping that we'll have some good news soon on that front. Hart said that she's been speaking with the people who've been involved with the National uh, Party's debate over its calendar. And she said that she believes it's important that Democrats and Republicans are working together for Iowa's best interests. Iowa's first-in-the-nation status is one thing that Iowa Democrats and Republicans have worked on together in the past. Republican Party of Iowa State Chair Jeff Kaufman has worked with Hart's predecessors to maintain that leadoff spot for both parties. National Republicans have kept the same nominating calendar for the 2024 cycle, meaning that Iowa Republicans' caucuses will remain first in the nation. Under the proposal on which the Democratic National Committee will vote this weekend, which was proposed by President Joe Biden, the first states to vote in Democrats' presidential primaries would be in order South Carolina, New Hampshire, and Nevada together, Georgia, and also Michigan. Hart said that caucuses were one of the reasons she got into politics. When I look back at the things that brought me to this political career, one of those things is is how I was able to sit in my parents' home and listen to the caucuses of both the Republicans and the Democrats that were held in our home, she said. I think it's just a very rich tradition. On the election front, Hart assumes that the party leadership at a time when Republicans hold the governor's office and majorities in both chambers of the House legislature, I should say of the Iowa legislature, excuse me, all but one statewide electrical office and elected office and all six seats in Iowa's congressional delegation. Hart said that the party should continue to organize the Democratic strongholds like Des Moines and Cedar Rapids metro areas but also needs to expand its organizing footprints to rural areas. She acknowledged that it will require more resources. In other words, better fundraising. Store clerk arrested for lottery fraud in Waterloo. A clerk at a convenience store This uh, has been arrested for allegedly taking lottery tickets while on the job. Waterloo police arrested Chastity Zweck, age 39, on Saturday on six counts of lottery fraud. She was later released pending trial. According to court uh, records, Zewick had worked at Broadway Liquor, 821 Broadway Street, and on September 28th, when she removed perfect gift lucky number game books and cash blast lottery tickets and played them. In Waterloo, Hawkeye receives audit results. Hawkeye Community College saw little growth in its reserves during the past year. A financial audit received and placed on file by the Board of Trustees last week shows that the college's unrestricted fund balance increased by $471,991 to $14.28 million during the first fiscal year that entered June 30th, a much smaller increase than the $4.52 million in the previous fiscal year. 
Dan Gillen, HCC's VP of Administration and Finance, said at the time that growth was predominantly a result of federal COVID-19 relief funds helping with enrollment uh, declines. The college continues to take steps in anticipation of enrollment decreases experienced by most state community colleges due to demographic and economic uh, fluctuations, states the most recent audit. Cost-cutting measures in the past few years have helped mitigate the loss of tuition revenue due to declining enrollment. The unrestricted fund represents money available for emergencies and is often considered a measure of financial stability. Hawkeye's total net position grew by $5.16 million to $88.85 million. Net position includes assets and liabilities as well as deferred inflows and outflows of resources. The audit also found Hawkeye's long-term debit obligation decreased, declining from $33.15 million to $28.06 million. Woman guilty of lesser charge in 2021 in Waterloo. A Waterloo woman has been found guilty of lesser charges for allegedly stabbing her boyfriend in the leg in 2021. Renee Wright, age 25, has been charged with willful injuries, causing serious injury, a felony. Following trial last week, jurors returned Friday with a verdict finding her guilty of simple assault, a misdemeanor. She was also found guilty of misdemeanor domestic assaults causing bodily injury. Assistant County Attorney Ashla Statch said that Wright deliberately stabbed Quentin Bradley in the leg after he disappeared for two days and then returned home on the 12th of December in 2021. The knife pierced the skin, fatty tissue, and even muscles and left him with lasting nerve damage, according to the testimony. Bradley then went to the hospital and Wright ordered McDonald's DoorDash, Statch said. Defense attorney Nicole Watt said that the stabbing was an accident and that Bradley was injured during a struggle over the knife. As for the other aspects of the altercation, Watt said that Wright was acting in self-defense, hitting him back when he hit her. Sentencing will be at a later date. And you are listening to the reading of The Courier for Tuesday, January 31st, and I am your narrator, Peter Welch, and you're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Information Services Network for the Blind and the Disabled. Uh, regarding obituaries, there's only one today, Galen Weinman of Parkersburg. Galen uh, Weinman, age 73, of Parkersburg, passed on the 28th of January at Unity Health Allen Point, excuse me, I should say Unity Point Health Allen Hospital, rather, in Waterloo. Uh, visitation will be at 4 p.m. on 6 to 6 p.m. on Friday, February 3rd at Redmond's Funeral and Cremation Services, Parkersburg Funeral Home in Parkersburg. And that, as I say, is the only one we've got here. Okay, what else is going on? Let's take a look at the Metro Briefs now. Windows on Waterloo features superintendent. In Waterloo, the Waterloo Community Foundation is hosting a free Zoom presentation on Wednesday at 11 a.m. featuring Jared Smith, the superintendent of Waterloo Community Schools. During the Windows on Waterloo event, Smith will be providing insights with updates on how his first year in the district is going and initiatives he is excited about for the future. 
Community members may join the presentation by contacting Paige Price, the Foundation's Program Manager, at page.price at w-l-o-o-c-o communityfoundation.org. Windows on Waterloo serves to highlight community organizations and the good work that they do. HCC's WE Build wins video contest. In Waterloo, Hawkeye Community College's WE Build Waterloo Pre-Apprenticeship Program won $5,000 in tools, gift cards, and apparel in the 8th Annual Built This Contested Contest, hosted by the National Center for Construction, Education, and Research. We Build Waterloo is a community-based program that provides career training, career counseling, resume assistance, interview preparation, and team building and personal skills development for those with employment barriers. Participants engage in a 12-week residential construction or rehabilitation project through the Introduction to Construction Trades Pre-Apprenticeship Program. Individuals learn high-demand construction skills and earn industry-recognized certifications while engaging in a residential construction or rehabilitation prospect of a home to be later to be sold to local or lower-income families. All right, let's see. Let's go on now to Capital Notebook. More money sought to fight bird flu in Des Moines. The Iowa Department of Agriculture and Land Stewardship is asking for more state money to prepare for and respond to foreign animal illnesses. Iowa Secretary of Agricultural Mike Nag asked a budget subcommittee Monday to double the state appropriations going to that cause from $750,000 to $1.5 million. The boost would allow the department to better respond to threats like bird flu and African swine fever, Nag says. With the new money, the department would hire more employees and buy equipment for responding to the African swine fever, he says. The department also is asking for increased funding for meat and poultry inspection, weights and measures, pesticide investigations, and the soil and land conservation cost share. Governor Kim Reynolds proposed the budget would keep the general fund appropriations to the Agricultural Department the same, but would add 500000 from a separate fund to cover the equipment costs for foreign animal illnesses response. Alzheimer's Association seeks more specialists. The Iowa Alzheimer's Association is asking lawmakers to strengthen the resources, resources for Iowans with Alzheimer's disease and dementia. Around 50 advocates were at the Iowa Capitol on Monday to lobby legislators on two specific provisions, placing a dementia service specialist at each of the Iowa's six area agencies on aging, reviewing and updating the recently completed Alzheimer's state plan every three to five years. More specialists would provide resources both for people with Alzheimer's and for caregivers and their families, the group said. There are 66,000 people age 65 and older with Alzheimer's in Iowa and 73,000 caregivers, according to the National Alzheimer's Association. The need for specialists is high. Iowa Alzheimer's Association Executive Director Doug Bickford said, especially as the number of Iowans living with Alzheimer's is expected to rise. 
We need a 446% increase in geriatricians to meet the expected demand by 2050 if treatments don't advance further than they are right now, he said. This is dire stuff. Reynolds opposes water rule. Governor Kim Reynolds joined two dozen other Republican governors in opposition to a federal rule regarding the regulation of certain waterways. The Republican governor is in a joint letter to Democratic President Joe Biden wrote that they believe that the administration should delay implementation of the rule, which is under the Federal Clean Water Act, until the U.S. Supreme Court rules on a related case. The opinion could significantly impact the final rule and its implementation, the governors wrote in the joint letter. To change the rule multiple times in six months is an inefficient, wasteful use of state and federal resources and will impose an unnecessary strain on farmers, builders, and every other impacted sector of the American economy. And finally, in Capital Notebook here uh, today, Auditor Urges Oversight of School Activity Fund. State Auditor Rob Sand issued a recommendation that school districts conduct oversight of student activity funds. Sand said that he decided to make the recommendations after his office discovered a substantial amount of misuse of student activity funds. Sand's office said that it identified more than $268,000 in in misused student activity funds over the past decade. That's the largest share of which were attributed to under uh, underposited collections, improper disimbursements, disimbursements, and uncollected facility usage fees, and improper deposits. This this service to remind school districts, boards of directors, faculty, and staff that student activity funds are public funds are the property of the school district and must be used to benefit the public, Sand said in his statement. Let's take a look now at some other news digest on the Nation and the World page. School reopens with more security in Newport, Virginia. The Virginia Elementary School, where a six-year-old boy and his teacher reopened Monday with stepped-up security and new administrator as nervous parents and students expressed optimism about a return to the classroom. Rich Neck Elementary School in in Newport News opened its doors more than three weeks after the January 6th shooting. Police have said that the boy brought a 9-millimeter handgun to school and intentionally shot his teacher, Abby Zerwerner. She was teaching her first grade class. Zoe Werner, age 25, was hospitalized for nearly two weeks, but is now recovering at home. Several police cars were parked at the school as teachers arrived. Students were greeted by a line of police officers, Mayor Philip Jones and other adults who gave them high fives as they walked into the school. Treasury plans to increase borrowing in Washington. The Treasury Department said Monday it plans to increase its borrowing during the first three months of 2023, even as the federal government bumps up against a $31.4 trillion limit on its legal borrowing authority. The U.S. plans to borrow $932 billion during the January to March quarter. That's $353 billion more than projected last October due to a lower beginning of quarter cash balance, projections of lower than expected income tax receipts, and higher spending. 
the increased borrowing will take place as Democrats in the White House push for Congress to increase the federal debt limit. President Joe Biden wants the cap raised without conditions. The new House Republican majority wants spending cuts in exchange for a debt limit increase. Treasury officials say that the debate over the debt ceiling poses a risk to the U.S. financial position. Ukraine fighting remained largely deadlocked on Monday in the eastern Ukraine area where Russian shelling killed five civilians over the past day. Ukrainian officials said as the warring sides size up their needs for renewed military pushes expected in coming weeks. In Peru, a group of House Democrats urged the Biden administration on Monday to suspend U.S. security assistance to Peru over a pattern of repression of anti-government projects, or excuse me, I should say protests, that has resulted in more than 50 civilian deaths. Sustainable fuel. Long-haul carrier Emirates successfully blew a Boeing 777 on a test flight on Monday with one engine entirely powered by so-called sustainable aviation fuel. The plane flew for just under an hour over the coastline of the United Arab Emirates after taking off from Dubai. COVID. The coronavirus remains a global health emergency, the World Health Organization Director General Tedros said on Monday after a key advisory panel found that the pandemic could be nearing an inflection point where higher levels of of immunity can lower virus-related deaths. Bolsonaro, Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro has filed a request for a six-month visitor visa to stay in the U.S., indicating he may have no immediate intention of returning home where legal issues await. The application was first reported by the Financial Times, signing Bolsonaro's immigration lawyer, Felipe Alexandra. Semiconductors. China's government on Monday criticized U.S. controls on technology exports as a trade violation after Japan and the Netherlands agreed to join Washington in limiting Beijing's access to materials to make advanced uh, processor chips they say can be used in weapons. President to end COVID emergencies, lawmakers already ended parts that kept millions in U.S. insured. In Washington, President Joe Biden informed Congress on Monday that he will end the twin national emergencies for addressing COVID-19 on the 11th of May. As most of the world has returned closer to normal nearly three years after they were first declared, the move to end the national emergency and public health emergency declarations would formally restructure the federal coronavirus response to treat the virus as an endemic threat to public health that can be managed through agencies and normal authorities. It comes as lawmakers have already ended elements of the emergencies that kept millions of Americans insured during the pandemic. Combined with the drawdown of most federal COVID-19 relief money, it would also shift the development of vaccines and treatments away from the direct management of the federal government. Congress has already blunted the reach of the public health emergency that had the most direct impact on Americans. Lawmakers have refused for months to fulfill the Biden administration's request for billions more dollars to extend free COVID vaccines and testing. And the $1.7 trillion spending package 
passed last year put an end to a rule that barred states from kicking people off Medicaid, a move that is expected to see millions of people lose coverage after the 1st of April. In Memphis, Tennessee, officials punished 6th Memphis police officer motorist was beaten and tased during stop, later died in the hospital. In Memphis, Tennessee, a 6th Memphis Police Department officer was disciplined for his involvement in the arrest and beating death of Tyree Nicholas. A department spokesman said on Monday, Officer Preston Hempel was relieved of duty shortly after the 7th, January 7th arrest of Nicholas, who died three days later at a hospital. Memphis Police spokesman Karen Rudolph said she did not disclose Hempel's role in the arrest. Hempel's lawyer, Lee Gerald, said that Hempel was the third officer at a traffic stop that preceded the violent arrest and that he activated his body camera. Hempel was not at the scene where Nicholas was beaten, Gerald said. Rudolph said that information on disciplinary action against Hempel was not immediately released because Hempel was not fired. And the department typically gives out information about officers who are relieved of duty after an investigation ends. All the anticipated video footage released on Friday showed Memphis Police Department officers using a stun gun, a baton, and their fists as they pummeled Nicholas during the nighttime arrest. Footage shows that Nicholas running away from the officers toward his house after he was pulled over on suspicion of reckless driving. Nicholas, age 29, was heard calling for his mother and sent struggling and, and seen, rather, I should say, struggling with his injuries as he sat helpless on the pavement. In Pakistan, 59 die in mosque attack. A suicide bomber struck a crowded mosque outside a police compound in Pakistan on Monday, causing the roof to collapse, killing at least 59 people and wounding more than 150,000 others, officials said. Most of the casualties were police officers. It was not clear how the bomber was able to slip into the walled compound, which houses the police headquarters in the northwestern city of Peshawar and is itself located in a high-security zone with other government buildings. Sabrakov Mohammed, a commander of the Pakistan, Pakistan Taliban, also non, known, rather, I should say, as T-Rick, claimed responsibility for the attack in a post on Twitter. But hours later, TTP spokesperson Mohammed Khorasani distanced the group from the bombing, saying it was not its policy to target mosques, seminaries, and religious places, adding that those taking part in such acts could face punitive action under TTP's policy. His statement did not address why a TTP commander had claimed responsibility for the bombing. The sheer scale of the human tragedy is unimaginable. This is no less than an attack on Pakistan, tweeted Prime Minister Sharif, who visited the wounded in Peshawar and vowed stern action against those behind the bombing. He expressed his condolences to families of the victims, saying that their pain cannot be described in words. In Jerusalem, Secretary urges calm. Blinken asked both sides to de-escalate amid bloodshed. In Jerusalem, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken urged Israel and the Palestinians on Monday to ease tensions following a spike in violence that has put the region on edge. The bloodshed has alarmed the Biden administration 
as it attempts to find common ground with Israel Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, new right-wing government. Yet aside from appeals for de-escalation and restraint, Blinken did not publicly offer specific ideas for calming the situation. And it was not immediately clear from his meeting with Netanyahu that the administration would propose any. Blinken will meet Tuesday with Palestinian leader Mohammed Abbas. We're urging all sides now to take ur- urgent steps to restore calm, to de-escalate, Blinken said after meeting Netanyahu. We want to make sure that there's an environment in which we can, I hope, at some point, create conditions where we can start to restore a sense of security for Israel and Palestinians alike, which, of course, is sorely lacking. Blinken arrived during one of the deadliest periods of fighting in years in the occupied West Bank and East Jerusalem. An Israeli military raid Thursday killed 10 Palestinians in the flashpoint, West Bank town of Janin, while a Palestinian gunman killed seven people outside a synagogue in an East Jerusalem settlement on Friday. The next morning, a 13-year-old Palestinian boy shot and wounded two Israelis elsewhere in East uh, Jerusalem. Netanyahu made no reference to the recent flare-up in violence and brief comments after the meeting instead of speaking of the dangers to Israel posed by Iran and his hope for expanding the so-called Abram Accords, normalization agrees, agreements, I should say, with several Arab countries, expanding the circle of peace, working to close, finally, the file of the Arab-Israeli conflict, I think would also help us achieve workable solutions with our Palestinian neighbors, Netanyahu went on to say. All right, let's take a quick look at the weather for the, for the week. Today it will be mostly sunny and cold, a high of 13. Tonight, it will be clear and cold, 3 degrees. Wednesday, there'll be periods of sun and it won't be as cold. High of 25. Oh, my goodness. A virtual heat wave here, huh? On Thursday, it will be breezy in the afternoon, a high of 21 and a low of 5 degrees. On Friday, it'll be partly sunny and cold, 9 degrees for a high, 2 degrees uh, in the evening. And then uh, look out for Saturday here. Breezy and not quite as cold, a high of 33 degrees. Okay, let's go down to Orlando, Florida. Oh boy, I'm sure a lot of you, including myself, would love to be there right now. It says here that the U.S. Population Center trending toward the south this decade. The U.S. Population Center is on track this uh, decade to take a southern swerve for the first time in history. And it's because of people like Owen Glick who moved from California to Florida more than a year ago. Last year, the South outgrew other U.S. regions by well over one million people through births, outpacing deaths, and domestic and international migration, according to population estimates from the U.S. Census Bureau. The Northeast and Midwest lost residents, and the West grew by an anemic 153,000 people, primarily because a large number of residents left for a different U.S. region. The West would have lost population if not for immigrants and the births outpacing deaths. In contrast, the South grew by 1.3 million new residents and six of the 10 U.S. states with the biggest growth last year were in the South, led by Texas, Florida, North Carolina, and Georgia. Experts aren't sure at this point if the dramatic pull of the South 
is a short-term change spurred by the COVID-19 pandemic or a long-term trend or even what impact it will have on the reallocation of political power through redistricting after the 2030 census. Because of delays caused by the pandemic, changes were made in how the Census Bureau has calculated the estimates this decade. And that, too, may have had an impact. And that may, too, may have had an impact, rather. But experts say that the southern allure has to do with a mix of housing affordability, lower taxes, the popularity of remote work during the pandemic era, and baby boomers retiring. Dick, age 56, and his then-partner moved to the Orlando area from Metro San Diego in December of 2021 after he retired from his job in corporate sales. They've been making regular trips to Central Florida before their move to check on rental properties that they purchased because they were more affordable in the Sunshine State than in Southern California. While the cost of housing and food is lower than in California, there are hidden home upkeep, upkeep costs in Florida, such as the need to paint more often because of the unrelenting sun and higher utility bills from year-round air conditioning, he says. You're in better financial shape in terms of prices here, but there are more expenditures to maintain properties, Glick goes on to say. Glick was among the 233,000 people who left a western state and planted roots in a different region from mid-2021 to mid-2022. He joined the ranks of the almost 868,000 people who moved to a southern state from another region. We have just a little time left here for our reading here of the of the Courier on the 31st of January. Let's talk about uh, looking at uh, television. Uh, Pamela, a love story on Netflix. This film presents an intimate and human, humanizing portrait of one of the world's most famous blonde bombshells, Pamela Anderson, following the trajectory of her life and career from a small town girl to international sex symbol, actress, activist, and doting mother. NBA basketball on TNT begins at 6.30 p.m., and that's live. The L.A. Lakers battle the Knicks at New York City's Madison Square Garden, followed by a clash in Colorado as the New Orleans Pelicans visit the Denver Nuggets. And at 7 p.m. on ABC, The Rookie in the episode Death Sentence. Nolan and Bailey search for a mystery gunman after a shooting hits a little too close to home. On NBC at 7.30 p.m., American Auto in the episode Most Hated CEO, Ian and Sadie to rehab Catherine's image from the Paul controversy by staging a phony video with Catherine's family and a visit to Late Night with Seth Meyers. Below Deck on Bravo at 8 p.m. This is the season's finale, Last Days in Norway. Whether contemptuous chef, chef rather, Jess Scallops don't stand by, Conde makes it through the last charter, though, is another question. And two crew members get extremely cozy after everyone else hits their bunks. And finally, on Fox at 8 p.m., accused, a teenager suspects foul play when he discovers his mother's former hospice caretaker is dating his father, Rachel Bilson. Reed Miller and Jack Davenport star in the new episode in the new episode rather excuse me Danny's story 
And that does it for the reading of The Courier for Tuesday on the 31st of January. Hard to believe we're already through the month. February starts tomorrow, folks. I want to thank you for listening to me, and you've been listening to Peter Welch as your narrator on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Information Services Network for the Blind and the Disabled. Bundle up. Stay warm out there. We'll talk soon. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye.